All right, guys. Well, I missed you over the last two weeks. Uh, Pastor Nate and Pastor Carlos did an incredible job. And over the last two or three weeks, I've had the opportunity to get away with our staff pastors. There's eight of us. We got away and we're doing some planning. And whenever we do that, we plan over the next six months in pen and then the six months after that in pencil. And we really talk about what we're doing. And I, I come to you today with as clear a vision of the future for our church as I've ever had, guys. We, I've been saying it for a long time, but we make and mobilize disciples in an environment in prayer and worship. That's what we do, okay? And this initiative, it ends today, but it's really just the beginning, guys. And I just wanna encourage you guys, we're, we're getting it done. We are not the same place that we were eight weeks ago. Uh, we're taking personal risks to bring Christ to every relationship. Like, we are praying, we are guessing, we are going. We are taking personal responsibility for the Great Commission. I mean, I'm hearing a lot of you talk about your one. You know, I'm praying for my one or uh, pray for me this week, I've got a conversation with my one, or a few of you, you've actually brought someone up to me and said, hey, I want you to meet Joe. He's my one, you know? <laughs> and so the first thing I want you to hear is, is well done, R really well done. Uh, we have made a lot of progress and we're growing in this area, but I want you to hear the second thing. So two things kind of I wanna say at the beginning before we're gonna pray. Well done and we're not done, okay? This is just the beginning. We, I, you know, we can't be in the one initiative series for 142 weeks, okay? We've got to go to other parts of scripture. There's lots of other things to cover, but really this is not the finish line. This is the starting line. And I just want to encourage you because, because we've heard some stories and I'm sure we'll show some videos eventually of people's ones coming to Christ through this series. But a lot of you, you just began the conversations. A lot of you, maybe you're even just a little discouraged because you tried a few things and it didn't work. Here's what I want to say, and then we're going to pray. God's not done with your one. And what you heard in that video, just continue to believe. I believe it's true that because you're in their life, that means that God's at work in their life. And so we're going to just one last time, we're going to pray for our ones. And then we're going to look at Acts chapter 20 and close this series together. It's been a great spiritual journey. They say it's one thing to do something you love. It's another thing to do something you love with people that you love. Two Cities Church, I love you. Let's pray. Lord, Grateful for our church. Grateful for how people are taking personal responsibility for the Great Commission. Grateful for how people have identified at least one relationship and have begun to take a gospel risk to bring Christ to that relationship. I pray whether it's through the, the wristbands we have on that we would not forget to pray for those who are far from God and close to us. I, I pray that we continue to take risks, to ask questions, to invite people to start Bible studies and just to be very intentional and deliberate in our relationships. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Guys, what's your favorite Bible verse? Don't yell it out, okay? Or what's your favorite Bible passage or what's your favorite book of the Bible? I know, okay, I know. All scripture is inspired. We believe in the total truthfulness of scripture, but there's just certain portions and parts that just kind of jump out and you go, that's my life verse. Like for some people it's Jeremiah 29, 11, right? I know the plans I have for you. For some people it's like a, a chapter. It's like Romans 8, the filet mignon of the Bible. I just love Romans 8, okay? Uh, there's certain people, it's, it's, it's Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd and it just speaks to me. And like, if I could just have like one portion of the Bible, it'd be that. Well, for me, it's Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 38. If you'll turn there, type two, swipe two, scroll two, get there, okay? Um, we're, guys, this is uh, the Apostle Paul's farewell speech. It's Paul's parting words. Uh, you'll see this in a minute. 
But what's interesting about the book of Acts is most of Paul's speeches in the book of Acts fall into two categories, okay? The first category is early in the book of Acts, and it's a bunch of evangelistic preaching, okay? He goes into the synagogue, he goes into the marketplace, he defends the faith, that's apologetics. It's a lot of like Paul speaking to unbelievers. And then the second half of the book, like, like after this chapter on, really, the last third of the book, I should say, is Paul defending himself in court, that's really what happens in chapters 21 to 28. It's a bunch of Paul defending himself in court. This is the only speech or sermon or lecture that we have from the Apostle Paul specifically to Christians. It's not just Paul the evangelist, we love that. It's Paul the pastor and it's Paul the leader. So I'll show you here, turn to verse 17. Here's, he calls a meeting, look here. Now from Miletus, and that's gonna be about 40 miles, from Ephesus, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus. Ephesus is a place he spent three years. That's the longest time he ever spent anywhere. And Timothy's gonna later pastor that church. Okay, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and he called the elders, that's the spiritual leaders of the church who uniquely represent and are responsible for the church, okay? We don't know how many elders they have. We have 22 elders in this church. So it's this, the elders of the church to come to him and when they came to him, he said to them, and we're gonna look at his speech in a second, but I want you to notice something, that Paul had something called convening authority. Convening authority, you go, well, what is that? It's the ability to call a gathering and people actually show up, right? There's positional authority. Positional authority is like, you know, I have authority over you because I'm your boss. And then there's convening authority, which comes out of the way you live your life. Paul had moral authority. Paul was the kind of guy that other people wanted to be around. And for some reason, I don't know why, we don't get all the answers. Paul didn't have time to go to Ephesus. He's on his third missionary journey. He knows, we'll see this a little bit later. He knows his time is short. So he says, he understands something that we all understand. As goes, or as go, yeah, as goes the leaders of a church, so goes the church. So he gets the leaders and here's what he's going to do. He's going to talk about his past, his present, and his future. You'll see this. He's gonna say, this is how I lived, and this is what I'm currently doing, and this is where I'm going, and that's what he's gonna do. But this is a unique message for us at the end of the series. Here's what I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give you six statements from Paul's life that should define your life. Paul is, is so autobiographical, and he's so personal, and he's going to open up, and he's going to tell us how he lived, and he's, basically, this is really neat. We get to look in and learn to, together at the end of the series Lessons from a lifetime of mission. And why is this important? Because if this, if we're going to be a missional church, if we're gonna be on mission where we live, learn, work, and play, okay? If we're gonna fulfill the great commission that Jesus gave us, we're gonna need more than an eight-week series. We're gonna to need to embrace these statements. Now, they're so important that I almost never, I don't even remember the last time I did this, I almost never put anything on the screen. So both of you who take notes, you're gonna really enjoy this today, okay? I, I, I put all six statements on the screen because I want you to see them. But first, I want you to see it in the verse. They rise out of scripture. Look at me. Here's the first thing. The first declaration that Paul makes is in verse 18, continued. You yourselves, he's speaking to the elders, know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Here's the first statement that I hope you're gonna embrace for the rest of your life. I will live the Christian life in front of others. I will no longer be a silent Christian. I will no longer allow the only people at work who know I'm a Christian to be me and Jesus. I will decide today to be highly relational and explicitly Christian because people would rather, I hate to break it to me, but people would rather see a sermon than hear a sermon. <laughs> and here's the thing, here, here, here's how Christianity works. 
Christianity is a belief system and a way of life. It's both. And our temptation is sometimes to think, well, Christianity is it's a belief system. I mean, we're, we're Bible, right? We're a Bible people. And then we have creeds and we have confessions and we have doctrinal statements. And a lot of our pastors, they go to seminary and we believe like all these deep things about God and Jesus and heaven and hell. And that's all true, but it's a belief system that should lead to a way of life, okay? Now, in fact, the only way that you know what you believe is you have to watch how you behave, right? We've talked about this before, but it's worth just one minute on this. It's, you're the most complex thing on earth, and so you probably don't know what you believe. This is, why do people need to go to therapy? Why do people go to counseling? Why do, we, why do people get entire PhDs in things like anthropology, not the store, okay, and, uh, and psychology? Well, why? Because we don't know what we believe. So how do you know what you believe? The only way to know what you believe is to watch yourself like a stranger and watch how you behave. And so it's very easy to be like, yeah, I believe that everything that I own is really from God on loan. Yeah, I really believe in stewardship. It's like, okay, but then wait a second. If, if I act like everything is my own and... I'm not storing up treasure in heaven and I live my life like this is the only life, then you have to have that conversation. You go, I don't really believe. You gotta go, God help me. You know, if you say, well, you know, I know we all say that those of us who are Christians, we say, yeah, we know other people need to hear about Jesus so they can escape the wrath of God. But if we tell nobody, then we just have to have the honest conversation with ourselves. Okay, I guess I don't believe that. I gotta figure out what I believe because this is not how I'm behaving. And I need to deepen my beliefs because my beliefs will show up in my behavior. Okay, maybe ask yourself this question. What life are you living in front of others? Now, let me just tell you, this is because here's what you're probably doing, okay? Unless you're like super intentional and you're thinking about it and you're like trying to be an explicit Christian, you're probably doing what is called expressive individualism. This is what every American does. It's on autopilot, unless you think differently. Expressive individualism is... I need to figure out who I am on the inside. And then I need to show everybody who I am by expressing that on the outside. And that, that's why I live in the neighborhood I do, because it says something. And that's why I drive the car that I drive, because it says something. And that's why I wear the clothes that I wear, and that's why I'm at the country club that I'm at. I, I do everything to just try to express to others how I feel and who I am on the inside. What, what life are you living in front of your kids? Guys, because there's only so much, those of you who have kids, there's only so much that we can do in an hour of kids' ministry. And we have an incredible kids' ministry, we have an incredible student ministry, but like, it, you know, if you bring your kids and you drop them off at those events, but then they go home and what you live in front of them really is consumerism and materialism. I, I can't preach good enough to make up for your bad example. I just can't, right? And so we, we have to just be honest. What life are we living in front of others? Well, Paul tells us. Look, here, I'll show you. He doesn't leave us alone. Paul, you might say, Paul, well, how? How do I live a Christian life? Look what he says. He says, this is verse 19. This is my life. Serving the Lord, okay, with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So Paul tells us for a second his motive. Now that's the interesting thing, like I can see your actions, like I know you're all here, that's, and I know that you all came to church today, but I have no, I mean, there's hundreds of different motives as to why you came across this room. So we, we, we get in trouble, right, because we assume and we judge people's motives, and we only know someone's motive if they honestly tell them to us. So Paul says, guys, I wanna tell you my motive for living the Christian life. 
It's to serve the Lord. Now, just to clarify, if you're new here, Paul is not saying I serve the Lord so that I get to go to heaven. He's not like I'm serving the Lord and I'm just gonna serve the Lord and I hope that God accepts my service and, and therefore lets me into heaven. No, Paul's gonna say, Paul's whole theology is God served me in Jesus Christ. At great cost to himself, the cross of Christ was God's service toward me, his sinless life and his substitutionary death. And in response, now what I wanna do is serve the Lord. Now listen, how do you serve the Lord? You serve God by serving people. That's it. I mean, James talks about this. You serve the God you don't see and can't see by serving people you do see. You serve God by serving people that are made in his image. Now, what a motive, guys. See, I think at, at the end of the day, you could summarize all motives into two categories, guilt or conviction. And I just, I hope, we're trying to preach in such a way here and teach in such a way and lead in such a way that your motive should not be guilt. <sighs> I just feel so terrible all the time and I feel so bad and therefore I have to do, I don't want to show up to a community group and have nothing to say and we're doing this one initiative so I guess I should probably be a part of it. That's guilt. Conviction is something deeper. See that Paul says, I serve the Lord and he gives us three words, humility, tears, trials. Humility is actually the word lowly. Here's what that means. Lowliness, Paul says, I feel in debt to other people because of how gracious God has been to me. So, you know, we can't pay God back, obviously. That's not the gospel. God did everything. Or maybe another way to say it is, God doesn't need your good deeds, but other people in your life do. And Paul never got over the grace of God in his life, and so he said, I, God's given me so much grace, I wanna serve other people. But then he says, tears. Like, it's very interesting that Paul would use like one of the three words to define his ministry as crying. I think that's just what he means. He means, guys, I am emotionally invested. Like, this is so important. Remember, the, Paul in Romans 9 says, uh, he cries. He goes, I'm weeping over my Jewish brothers and sisters who don't know Jesus, and I would rather be cut off and accursed and go to hell if they would all believe. Paul, Paul writes a letter, it's either 1st or 2nd Corinthians, and he writes the letter and he says, I write this to you with tears. Even his letters, he would cry, he'd be brokenhearted over. Paul says in, in Philippians 3, he says, I write this right now with tears in my eyes. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. So here's the first thing Paul said, and we just have to decide this today. You just have to say, you know what, when I wake up at my home, at my work, in my neighborhood, I will live the Christian life in front of others because people need an explanation of the gospel and an example of the gospel. And people cannot believe in something they've never heard and never seen. The second one is very important, look here. The second one he says in verse 20. He says how, he's going on about his life, how I did not shrink, that's to be small and silent. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Here's the second, ready, ready for the second statement that I hope will define your life. I will tell you the truth even when it's hard. Notice Paul says I didn't shrink. So he's, he's to say it positively, Paul's saying I was courageous. Now G.K. Chesterton, famous Catholic thinker, and I think he's right on this. He said that courage is the virtue on which all the other virtues sit and stand. And so if you think about it for a reason, like you might say like, well, 
you want to share the gospel with your mom, but you're like, well, why, why are you struggling to share your, the gospel with your mom? Number one reason, you don't have the courage to do it. Well, what, 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 you know, well, okay, you, you need to confess a sin to somebody. Just one person. You need to let, why haven't you confessed a sin? You don't have the courage to do it. You need to be reconciled to somebody in your life, and you know it. You need to initiate that conversation, but why haven't you done it? Well, there's lots of reasons, and there's lots of virtues, but you don't have the courage. So Paul says, I had the courage to tell you the truth. In a couple more verses, he's going to say, I told you the entire counsel of God. So we have to be committed to tell people not what they want to hear, but what they need to hear. And some of you, there are just like you, certain topics you completely avoid. You never talk about hell. You never talk about judgment. You never talk about a New Testament sexual ethic. Because you know, you're like, that, that's, that, that's not what they want to hear, even though that might be what they need to hear. See, here's what Paul says. Paul says that in the last days, and that's this time period. Now, we don't know if we're in the last days of the, are we in the last day of the last days? I don't know. But we're in the last days, according to the Bible. He says, in the last days, people will, listen to this, they will seek out teachers for themselves who will tell them what they want to hear. Now, that's always been true, but it's never been easier than today. If you want to live some lifestyle, you'll find some podcast where he or she will tell you it's okay. You'll find a YouTube channel that'll tell you this is great. You'll find a social media account that will affirm you in your worldliness, right? You'll find a New York Times best-selling book that will tell you exactly what you want to hear. See, this has happened to us. Let me give you just an example. This happens in our church. Um, you know, a, a couple will come to the Weekender and we're like, wait a second, they have two last names and they live at one address. Like, okay, so they're cohabitating together. And we will always try to lovingly, you know, have a conversation with them. Say, hey, listen, this is, this is sin. This is actually what used to be called living in sin, literally. And this goes against what God's word says. And we try to have this conversation. And do you know what happens every time we do it? Almost every time. Do you think that they repent? No, they make a lot of excuses. Well, it's more affordable and this is why and da, da, da. And, and then they leave. And then they go to a church that affirms them in their cohabitation. See, we, we live in a time of, I mean, everybody is lying to us today, okay? The mainstream media is lying to you. The government's lying to you. The school system's lying. Think about, you know, I know these are hot topics, but just think about it. Like the whole pro-choice movement, which is the pro-abortion movement, which kills babies in the womb, okay? That's what it does. And it, how can you do something like that? You have to lie about it. You have to call it women's reproduction rights. You have to call it women's health care. <laughs> Okay, the, you know, blue-haired blue gender jihad group, do you know who I'm talking about? Okay, we love them. We love them. We don't like their ideology. We love them. The idea that you're going to castrate boys and you're going to give puberty blockers to kids and you're going to give healthy girls double mastectomies, it's like, how can this be? And you're going to call something gender affirmation surgery? That's what it's called. That's Orwellian. So anyway, so listen, I want you to understand that how can that happen? The only way that can happen is if people lie all the time about everything, okay? And so, but there's one person who lies more than all of them, you to yourself, right? I mean, how many times do you say, honestly, you know, don't, you don't raise your hand, but you've told yourself you're okay and you're not okay. And you told yourself you're not addicted 
and you're addicted. And you told yourself you don't have a problem and you do have a problem. And you've told yourself your kids are fine. Oh, they're fine. Yeah, no, they're not. You know they're not. And you said your marriage is, doesn't need counseling and it definitely needs counseling. And so here's what happens. The Bible transcends, this is important to understand, the Bible transcends every culture. So what it will do to every culture is it will commend and celebrate certain things in the culture and it will uh, challenge and condemn other things. So right, right now like in our nation, we do a great job with all of our ADA stuff. I mean, we know this going to our new building. That's, that's all the stuff you have to do for people with disabilities. It's like uniquely, our government has said, we need to think about these people and design every building so it works for them. It's like, well, that is the image of God. That is caring for the least, last, you know, and leftovers. That, that is a heart for the weak. Love it. So you can think about it this way. The, the Bible is both cake and carrots, and we all like cake, and no one likes carrots. Don't tell me you like carrots. If you like carrots, it's because you put butter and other things all over them. No one likes carrots, okay? We know you don't like carrots. Um, nobody likes carrots. Um, and so what, what, what you have to ha have happen is, is you're gonna have to ask, the, when the Bible says something that you don't agree with, you're going to have to decide, am I going to try to edit the Bible or am I going to change my mind? That those, are, those are the two things, you know. And so you know if you believe the Bible, if the Bible is actually allowed to correct you. I mean, did you think that God, the God of the universe, was going to agree with you about everything? No. God is not just a bigger, smarter version of you. And so Paul says, I told you the truth even when it was hard. Look, he goes on here. I was testifying to Jews and Greeks. I was the same person and I said the same thing around different people. Of repentance, that, that's carrots. No one likes to talk about that, okay? And of faith in the Lord Jesus. There's cake, we all like to talk about that. Look what he says next, verse 22. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit does tell me one thing. The Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, it's like, what, Paul, what's happening? <sighs> that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Third thing, I will submit to God's will for my life. I mean, these guys are long-term statements that can define your life. I will live the Christian life in front of other people. What would that look like? I will tell them the truth even when it's hard, which means I know I'm gonna have some hard conversations at Thanksgiving. Well, then what else? I will submit my life to God's will. Do you hear Paul says, guys, I'm constrained by the Holy Spirit. That's the only time that phrase is used in the New Testament. Like Christians are told to be led by the Holy Spirit. And Christians are told to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And, and we're told that when a person becomes a Christian, they are baptized in the Holy Spirit. In other words, they're immersed in the Holy Spirit, okay? But what does it mean to be constrained? It's like, I don't know if this is like, you know, we're all JV and Paul's varsity level, okay? Constrained has something to do with like, I've given my life over to the total leadership of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what it means to submit. I accept what God has said and what God is doing in my life, and I trust him. And there's two things about submission. Submission has to always do with the future. Like Paul says, you'll notice here, Paul says, I don't know what's going to happen. He says, and then he goes in a second, he goes, well, okay, some imprisonments and afflictions, but I don't know what's gonna happen. So here's what you realize as a Christian, or you can realize this as a non-Christian as well. You realize I can't change the past and I can't control the future. All I can do is submit in the present. You know, it's, it's interesting. You, you, we all have things in our past, I'm sure, that we're ashamed of and embarrassed by. And you just have to say, Lord, I submit. I submit that you're gonna work all this out for good in my life. I had a hard, you know, my parents were hard or when my first marriage ended or 
I struggled with this addiction for a lot longer than I wish I did, right? We're all, we all have to deal with our past. Nietzsche once said, he said, you may think you're done with your past. Your past may not be done with you. And that's always scary. And so you say, Lord, I, 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 I can't change the past. And then you realize I can't control the future. Like think about your life and like, I don't know how old each of you are, but like, you know, you take a 20 year window and the honest truth is you have no idea what's going to happen, right? All we know is that the future is where all of us go to die. It's like, that's what the future is. If you take a long enough view of the future, what is the future? Where I go to die and everybody I love goes to die. That's, what the, that's where the future is, long enough into the future. And so then you have to go, okay, I have no idea what's going to happen in my health or my, my parents' health in the next 10 or 15 years. I don't know when my parents, you know, you might say that. I don't know when my parents are gonna die. I don't know if they're gonna have to live with us. I don't know what old age and illness and injury is gonna do to them. You have no idea. Like, are we heading into World War III right now? I don't know. We have no idea what's going to happen in our nation over the next 10 or 15 years. We have no idea what's gonna happen in our economy and with your finances. You have no idea, we, you know, we just hope our kids just grow up and love the Lord and everything works well and they're always healthy and they marry young and well, you have no idea. And so I'm just telling you this all right now so you just go, okay, well, I, don't, I can't change my past and I can't control the future, so I, I submit, I accept. But then Paul teaches us another thing about submission. He says, I accept the hard things in my life. So you have to accept the unknown and that's always scary. And then you have to accept the hard things in your life. Like it's, it's easy to submit when God blesses you in a way you want to. You're like, you get the promotion, you're like, Lord, I submit, I submit. The, the woman of your dreams falls for you, right? You're like, Lord, it's, I submit, you know? <laughs> That's easy. It's really hard when you're like, I'm still single and it's not the young single anymore. You know, it's like, this is, this, this is, the, this is the, like, not season of singleness, this is like maybe stage of life singleness. And so what Paul says is, guys, I, I'm gonna submit. Now, Paul, he, he doesn't let us alone. He tells us how he's able to do this. Because you're like, Paul, you know, are you a superhero? I mean, how do, you, how do you do this? Look at verse 24. He tells us how he's able to submit. I don't account my life, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. Here's what Paul's saying, guys. He's actually using, you can see it in the Greek here, the original language. He's using the language of an accountant. And he's literally saying it this way. This is the way we would say it today if we were just gonna say, hey guys, calm down, I've done the math. And I looked at my life and I realized that the average person only lives 30,000 days. And I realized that like, Paul really believed all the things we say we believe. Like he really believed that this life was preparation for eternity. And he really believed that actually the, one of the main ways the gospel, the main strategy, God's strategy for the gospel getting to new people is suffering, right? I mean, you know that. How did the gospel get to America? One word, suffering. How will the gospel get all the places that it hasn't gone yet? Suffering. How does the gospel get to the heart of Wake Forest campus? There's only one answer. It's not, it's, it's, it's suffering. Anyway, so he understood that. And so he says, guys, and he says this, guys, I'm not thinking about what I can lose. That's how we think. He says, I, I'm actually thinking about what I can gain. So here's what Paul says. Paul says, I will live the Christian life in front of you. I hope you'll make that commitment today. He says, number two, I'm gonna tell you the truth even when it's hard. Number three, I'm going to submit to God's will for my life even when I don't know what's going to happen or I'm pretty sure what's going to happen is not good in the world's eyes. The fourth thing is, I will run my race and finish it. I want you to see this. If only I may finish my course or my race or my path and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So this, there's no less than six times 
in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul talks about running a race. And we've said before that the Christian life isn't a sprint. I mean, that would be great. You know, it's a sprint. No, it's not a sprint. And it's, and it's not even a marathon, although that's a better way to think about it. It's like a lifelong race where we're constantly passing the baton to the next generation. That's what it is. And so a couple quick things about running your race. Number one, you have to run your race. You can't run someone else's race. You know, and, and this is your word just for some of you, but some of you, you just had such great parents or you have such a great older brother or sister or you had such a great mentor and you just have to go, I'm not him and I'm not her. And I have to run my race. By the time somebody gets out of high school, they are seriously, and I don't mean this in like a snowflake way, they are seriously unique. Like if you're over 18 years old, like there is, and again, I mean this in, 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 in a biblical understanding, there is no one like you. No one had your parents and your birth order and your personality and your struggles and your IQ and your skill set and your sin, I mean, nobody. And so then you just gotta go, okay, then I've gotta run my race. And, and here's maybe the other point of this. Nobody can run your race for you. And if you don't run your race, then you leave a huge hole. And you'll see this. It's like, dude, dad didn't run his race. Or he didn't finish his race. And he left a huge hole. Some people can look back and it's like, grandpa didn't run. And it's still affecting me because no one else can run your race, but how you run your race can affect everybody else. Well, Paul, Paul says that I ran my race. I was on my path. See, see we also know this, that well, the path you're on, or maybe I should say it this way, the direction of your life is way more important than the intentions of your life. Like if I said, guys, I, I'm after here, after the service, I'm gonna head to Asheville, and I get on 40 East. I'm, if you don't know this, Asheville's West. Okay. <laughs> If I get on 40 East, I am never getting to Asheville. It doesn't matter how much I pray about it. It doesn't matter how much I plan on the way there. It doesn't matter how excited I am. And what you'll realize is anybody who is on a path that, uh, anybody who's done anything great in life, you'll realize it was a path. You'll meet somebody and they're in fantastic shape. And you'll say something to them like, hey, how did you get in such great shape? And they'll never say to you, I don't know. <laughs> I just woke up with this six pack. I don't know what, you know. They're all gonna say the same thing. They're gonna be like, well, here's, here's how much water I drink and here's my, how I eat and here's how I sleep and here's my exercise routine and here are my goals. And you'll, you'll never meet somebody with a great family and a great marriage and you'll never, you'll never say to them, how did your family, you guys still love each other and your kids wanna come back to the house when they don't need to anymore? And no one's gonna say, I don't know how it happened. Everyone's gonna say, well, we valued this and we took vacation and we spent time with our kids individually and we had a plan for their life and we had values for our home. And... But Paul's focus is not just to run the race. You'll notice he, his main focus is to finish the race. Okay, so some of you, we all start differently. Some people get a slow start to the race. Like we meet a lot of people here in our church and we're not really sure, and they're not really sure. Did they become a Christian in our church or did they just wake up spiritually? Because a lot of people say something like, well, I was baptized at 12 and I think I believed, but, but it wasn't until I was 23 years old and came here and God invested in a community group and that I actually feel like I'm growing. Okay, so there's some people who get a slow start. There's some people who get a late start. And I think when we get in this new building and the way that God's using this one initiative, I think we're, we're gonna see more people and they get a late start and they come to Christ at like 43 or 45. And by the way, it's a great joy in their life and it's also very hard on them. 
Because then they look back and they're like, my life is halfway over and half of my life I didn't live for Christ. And then their body remembers all their sinful behaviors, you know, and then they look back and they go, I didn't, I didn't walk with Christ in high school and I didn't walk with Christ in college and I, I, our marriage wasn't founded on Christ. And, and then you say to all these people, guys, listen, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And you can have a slow start and you can have a late start and it's all about finishing. And unfortunately, guys, we have some examples even in the New Testament of people who didn't finish well. Both Jesus and Paul had a good friend who didn't finish well. Jesus' good friend, Judas. Paul's good friend, Demas. Both of them didn't finish well. So Paul says, I'm gonna run the race and I'm going to finish it. But then there's a fifth thing I want you to see. If you'll turn with me uh, to verse 25, here's what he says. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. So he's talking to these leaders and he basically says, guys, I'm headed to heaven really soon. Uh, this is his third missionary journey. He knows that he will never make it back to Ephesus again and that he will never see them again face to face this side of eternity. So here's his, here's his fifth thing he says, I will think about the next generation. So we believe here that churches should live longer than people. That normally doesn't happen. But churches should live longer than people. People live to be 80, 85, 90 years old. We think churches should live longer than that. And the only way that churches can live longer than that is if every generation thinks about the next generation. So Paul is going to basically do two things to help the next generation. He's going to warn them and then entrust them to God. I'll show you. Here, look, he warns them first. Therefore, I testify, I'm in verse 26, therefore, I testify to you this day, this is intense, look at this, that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did, here it is again, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So Paul believed, we believe here, that it takes the whole Bible to make the whole Christian, and that's one of the reasons, by the way, why we just walk through books of the Bible, so we deal with all these different topics. But I want you to get an illustration, it's a little intense, okay, he says, I'm innocent of the blood of all, it's like, what are we talking about? He's using an illustration from the Old Testament. And it's the illustration of a watchman. Okay, this is what would happen. There would be uh, certain men that would guard the city walls every night. And they were called the watchmen. And, and their job was to stay awake and to be alert. And if they saw danger coming, they had one job. Watch for, so usually it was boring. No one shows up, everything's fine. Their one job was, if they see danger coming, they blow the trumpet, okay? Now, why, why is this all connected? Because here's the, what the law was, and the Jewish law in Israel was this. Hey, listen, watchmen, if you blow the trumpet, saying there's danger coming, okay, which basically means hide, you know, or get out of here, or there's, our enemies are coming, okay? He says, if you blow the trumpet, and, uh, and people don't listen, and that often happens, right? You'll see this, right? The weather companies, or the weather channel and stuff will tell you, hey, a hurricane's coming, and people will just stay, right? This happens. They don't listen. They don't believe it. He says, well, listen, guys, if you blow the trumpet and, uh, and people don't listen and they get killed by this enemy, not your fault. But the other side was, if you're not awake and you're not alert or you see danger coming, but you don't blow the trumpet, everybody who dies, the blood is on you. So Paul takes this intense idea of a watchman and says, that's what every Christian is for the people in their life. 
And so here, here's what I just, you know, and I, and I hate to be so intense. I know there's some intense things in there. I really do. I, and, I, and this is, we're going to get it more intense just for a second. But here's what we don't want to have happen. And I would just rather talk about it right now, you know, so that it doesn't happen. But what, what happens in a lot of people's lives is their older brother or their older sister or their aunt or their mom or their dad, you know, gets stage three, stage four cancer or something like that. And they're dying. And they're maybe dying quickly. And what happens in a lot of those situations is the person will feel an enormous amount of guilt of, I've never talked to them about Jesus. You know, I mean, you, you don't want to get the phone call like, hey, I, my, I've never talked to my dad about Jesus. He's got stage four and it's going sideways and I don't know if I'm going to make it in time. It's like, you do not want to be on the other side of that phone call. What Paul wanted to have is, is something we don't talk about anymore. Paul wanted to have a clear conscience. If you read Paul's letters and look at, the, look at Acts, he always is talking about something we never talk about, which is having a clear conscience, which Paul basically says, guys, here's my job. I have to tell you about Jesus but I'm not the Holy Spirit, and I, I can't play JV Holy Spirit, and I don't know what you're going to do with what I'm going to tell you. But my conscience before you and before God is clear once I have told you the gospel message and called you to respond. And so what, here, if we could say it maybe more simply, Paul was saying, before I go, I want you to know. Or before you go, I want you to know. And what you're going to realize is over your life, you're going to be in a lot of different situations. You'll live in a neighborhood and you'll, you know, you'll go, you'll be in college at a dorm and you'll be at a certain job for five years and then you'll move and you'll take a promotion. You'll live in one city for a while and you'll go here, you'll be in this apartment complex and then you'll get your starter home. And what you just want to say is in every season, God has put these people around me and before I go or before they go, I want them to know. So, so Paul says, guys, the way I think about the next generation is I warn you. I taught, taught you the whole Bible. And then he warns them again. Look here. He says this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit, I'm in verse 28, has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, look here, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day, here it is again, to admonish you with tears. So Paul warns them. He says, guys, there's going to be dangers from without and dangers from within. The dangers from without are always persecution. The dangers from within are always false doctrine and worldliness. And no church will ever experience all three of those at the same time because the worldly church will never be persecuted. But those are the three temptations of the church in every age. Worldliness, persecution, and false doctrine. Now, I don't think we're in a time where we're being persecuted as a church or as in the nation of America. But I will say that if you follow a history of how persecution works, there's always opposition to Christianity before there's persecution of Christians. And I will say what appears to be happening in many places in America is increased opposition to Christianity, which makes me think there may one day soon be persecution. Paul's less concerned about what happens on the outside. He's more concerned about what happens on the inside. Notice he talks, he says, there's gonna be fierce wolves that will come in. See, I want you, when you think about the church, a lot of people, when they think about the church, they have an overly simplistic view of it. They go, I understand the church. The church is shepherds and sheep. It's like, I wish that's what the church was. 
You know, you go, okay, there's like, you know, the staff and the pastors and, you know, and the community group leaders and like, they're, they're, you know, they kind of shepherd and then there's the sheep and the sheep, kind of, it's like, man, I wish it was that simple. The Bible gives you actually four, four types of people that are in the church. There's shepherds, there's sheep, there's goats, and there's wolves. The whole parable of the sheep and the goats says there's people that are a part of the crowd and not part of the church and they know all the right language and they don't realize till the end that they weren't really a believer. Those are the goats. But then he says there are wolves and wolves come into the church and they come in, Jesus says, in sheep's clothing. And so he warns them to be very, very careful. By the way, this is why we're so careful about who comes into our church. This is why we have the weekender. This is why we are super serious about all of our leadership in our church. So here's what Paul says. Paul says, I want you to be careful. And then look what he says in verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. So I warn and then I commend you to God. Commend is the word, which means I give you over and place you in protection of. So that's what you do. Like this is what every parent has to do with their kid at some point, you know, especially once they graduate high school. It's like, all right, I've told you about, I've warned you about this and I've warned you about that. And I've told you you need some good Christian friends. And I told you to find a church and I told you to find a campus ministry. And I warned you about the danger of sexual promiscuity. And I, I'm giving you over to God. I can't babysit you the rest of my life. I'm gonna, I, I, I and so Paul's like, guys, I, I, even though he's concerned, he can't stay because he's about to leave, which, which leads to the last thing he's gonna say. I want you to see this. Here's the last thing he says. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me in all things. I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. Paul probably means the poor. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Here's the final thing that Paul says. I will always give more than I take. It's interesting. I only talk about money as often as it comes up in the scriptures. But it's interesting to me that Paul, his final words of his final words are about money. Like he's talked about teaching the Bible and he's talked about telling the truth and he's talked about living the life and he's talked about trusting God and he's talked about running his, he's talked about all those things. But it's like, really Paul, the final thing? Like you're literally about to get on the ship and leave them forever and you're gonna talk about money and possessions? Yes. So Paul says, the first thing Paul says is, I coveted no one's silver, gold, or he even says apparel. He says, basically, I didn't want your Patagonia jacket. Okay, that's what he's trying to say. Um, see, here's what happens when you covet. When you covet, you say, God, you got it wrong. I'm supposed to have that, not them. And you can't minister to somebody you're jealous of, right? If you're like, you can't, you're jealous of your older sister because she's, you know, whatever. You're jealous of your coworker. You're jealous of your friends. It's like you can't minister to somebody that you're jealous of. Paul says, instead of coveting, he says, I worked hard so that I could share with others. It's interesting. Some people are jealous because they're lazy. Like people look at, at people who have like, you know, they look at like someone in their 50s, like look at their house, look at their cars. It's like they're 50. They worked really hard for a long time and learned how to save and they made their money and then they invested their money in okay. And young people are like, well, I just, you know, I'm covered in Cheeto dust playing video games. <laughs> you know, and I want all, it's like, you can't have all those things, you're lazy. 
And so, so Paul says, I wasn't lazy, I worked hard. And then, but Paul says, I, I, Paul understood something, that you make a living by what you get, but you make a life by what you give. So Paul, Paul was like, you know, Paul had the right, he says this other places, Paul had the right to live off of support. Jesus lived off of support. There were primarily three wealthy women that supported Jesus' ministry for most of his time. And, and so Paul could have done that, but Paul says, I didn't want to. So Paul, who's a white collar, scholarly intellect, made tents on the side. I mean, that's blue collar work. And he said, I, I love to do that because then I had a little bit of money and I love to give it to help other people. It's like, wow. But then he says this, he says, because I remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It's interesting. Why aren't people generous? There's many reasons. Sometimes it's because we forget. Paul says, I remember the words of the Lord Jesus. Now, it's interesting. The words of the Lord Jesus are not found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I don't know when Jesus said this, but it's not written down by Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. This is either part of the oral tradition that something else, Jesus taught many things that we didn't have written down. This is one of the, the only places in scripture where we have the words of Jesus not in a gospel and not found in a gospel. And the words are interesting. The words are not what we think they are. So most people, they'll say something like, hey, you know what? It's better to give than to receive. People quote that all the time. They don't even know they're quoting Jesus, but actually they're misquoting Jesus. If you look carefully, here's what he says. He doesn't say it's better to give than to receive. He said it's more blessed. So here's the interesting thing. What is he talking about? He's not talking about material blessings. Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. He's talking about spiritual blessing. Because here's what happened. If, you, if you're honest, what we're looking for when we're trying to find material blessings in our lives is we're actually looking for the spiritual blessing underneath it. Like what is the nice car about? It's not about the material blessing. It's about the security you feel or the identity you have or the status that it gives you. Look, all advertisements know this. They're not selling you the car, they're putting Matthew McConaughey in it, okay? <laughs> and you're like, I just wanna look like him. If I have a car, I'll look like him. You won't look like him if you have a car, okay? So, guys, here, here, here's, the, here's the, can you say in your life, I gave more than I took? You know, maybe you can say, look, I'm not the best husband or I'm not the best wife, but here's my new commitment. I'm gonna give more than I take. That's, that's, that's gonna be part of my repentance and part of my healing. I, I'm not the best parent, okay. I'm gonna start giving more than I take. At work, can you say I give more than I take? In this church, can you say I give more than I take? Those were the final words of Paul before he goes to the ship. Look here, as we close. Verse 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. What an emotional scene. And there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him, and being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. This is what we call at Two Cities Church a gospel goodbye. It's when you say goodbye to a certain people or a certain place for the sake of the good news. It's when you move, even though you don't maybe wanna move and you miss the people you're moving from, you move for the sake of mission, you know? And this is real 
a part of our church because as I've told you so many times, we had 30 people seven years ago that said gospel goodbyes, mostly in the Raleigh-Durham area. And they said goodbye. They said goodbye to a great community group. They said goodbye to a great neighborhood. They said goodbye to a great school system. They said goodbye to a great church. And they all moved for the sake of mission. And I, I want you to remember this, this image because guys, this is, as we become more and more of a sending church, we're going to have a lot of gospel goodbyes. We're gonna be ending services and hey, here's 40 people, get on stage, guys, they're all leaving. Hug their necks when, when they leave because they're not coming back. And we're gonna be going for the sake of mission. And the reason that we do gospel goodbyes is because Jesus said the ultimate gospel goodbye 2000 years ago to the Father and the Spirit and said, I've gotta go and I'm not, I'm not crossing an ocean, I'm crossing eternity because I've got to win, I, I've, I've got to give my life and die on the cross for my church. In fact, when you look at the, the six things that we're committing to and the six things that Paul modeled, didn't Jesus just do them first and best? Didn't Jesus say, I will live the life in front of you? Actually, no, I won't just live the life in front of you. I will live the life for you. Didn't Jesus say, I will tell you the truth even when it's hard. In fact, I am the truth and I am the way and I am the life. Didn't Jesus submit to God's will in the hardest moments of his life while he's sweating blood in the garden? Did Jesus not say, I'm gonna run my race and I'm gonna finish it? In fact, for the joy set before me, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And his final words on the cross were, it is finished. Did Jesus Christ not just think about the next generation? Didn't Jesus think about every generation that he died for? And didn't Jesus always and everywhere give more than he took? He didn't just give some of his blood for the church. He gave all of it. Let's pray. Lord, would you, would you build a church where each person in the church can say these statements, Lord? Would they be a compass for our life, Lord? Would we, would we, would we as we walk into work or meet our family or head to Thanksgiving dinner in a few weeks, can we just say, by grace and by grit, I will live the Christian life in front of other people? Lord, even though we're afraid, there's certain topics, there's certain questions, there's certain things we need to talk to people about, Lord. Would, you, would we really believe here that Hard words make soft people and soft words make hard people. Would you give us the ability to tell the truth even when it's hard, Lord? Lord, as some of us are going through some very, very difficult things right now, would you help us to just say, Lord, I submit. I can't control the past or change the past. I can't control the future. I wanna submit, Lord. Would you, would you help us to run our race? Would you help us to think for the next generation? And everywhere we go, would we be able to say when we're done, I gave more than I took. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.